We're going to talk this morning, we're going to begin this series, uh, I'm not sure, I may say something like this during the, uh, the worship hour also, but uh, when Adam contacted me, the elders invited me to, to be here, I'm not sure if this was his idea or their idea or a joint effort or, or what it was. But I told him about a series I had worked on at one time, and in fact, I've, I've kind of got a manuscript ready for a book, and I was hoping I'd have the book here, but the guy couldn't get it printed in time and all that kind of stuff. But one day, for some reason, two different verses popped into my head at the same time. I'm come that they might have life, and that they might have it more abundantly, John 10 and verse 30. I'm come to seek and to save that which was lost. Luke 19.10. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. Why did Jesus come to earth? Why did he say he came to earth? And so I started digging through the New Testament, especially the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and I found a number of different times that Jesus said, here is why I came. Or sometimes he would identify himself as the Son of Man. The Son of Man has come to do this or that. And as Adam and I were talking, I guess, on the, uh, the podcast yesterday morning, which was a new experience for me, the bottom line is, because, like the song says, because he loves me so, or he loved me so. But this week, we're going to be looking at some of those statements he made, I guess six of them starting in the worship hour and then tonight and Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday evening at some of the times that Jesus said, here's why I came. And then hopefully hopefully we'll see something about his mission and maybe we'll see something about our mission, our identity, who we are, what we ought to be. If we are the body of Christ and he is our Lord, we're trying to carry out his will, maybe we can learn something about what we're supposed to be doing too. But first, I guess we need to get established that he, in fact, did come to earth. Turn to John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, we read a conversation that apparently went on between two individuals. There may have been some others standing around, but the two main people in this scenario, one is a man who he doesn't identify himself necessarily, by his clothing, I'm wondering anyway, if he doesn't identify himself this way, as a, a Pharisee, as a member of the Sanhedrin, but he was both. We know him as Nicodemus. And then the other person in the conversation, the other individual, is, is our Lord, Jesus Christ. And if you read John chapter 3, and we're going to be getting our points all the way down to about verse... 21. I don't know if we're going to take time to read all of that or not. But there's some questions about John 3. There's some misunderstandings about John 3. But there's some truths kind of tucked away in John chapter 3 that I hope we can identify this morning. I think most of us in this room would recognize the fact that there is one huge misunderstanding from John chapter 3. Jesus talks to Nicodemus about the necessity of being born again and then being born of the water and of the Spirit. And so in our day and time, we hear about somebody who has been a Christian for a number of years, and now all of a sudden they've had an experience and they're a born-again 
Christian. The Bible doesn't teach that kind of concept. The Bible teaches that when I become a Christian, I am born again. Romans chapter 6, for example, talks about we're raised to walk in newness of life. And 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If I'm in Christ, I'm a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And even those who, who wouldn't quite accept that idea that, uh, okay, there's, not a, there's a difference between born again and being a Christian, they still haven't figured out what Jesus was talking about, about being born of water and the Spirit. The religious group I came out of said that water in John chapter 3 could not be water, not the water of baptism. It might be the water of the fluid in, in, the, in the mother's womb that the child is born, and then he's born physically, and then he's born again spiritually, born of water when he's born into the world, born of the Spirit when he's had an experience to be baptized into Christ or to be saved. They don't say you're baptized into Christ in that group. But I think we understand, those of us here this morning understand, that he's really talking about two components of one thing. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. We understand that. But then Peter also says that we're born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. If the seed is the Word of God, and it's incorruptible, by the way, maybe you want to play the same mental game I did with myself one day. I'm my own worst enemy. I think of these things, and I think, I wish I hadn't thought of this. Incorruptible seed. And then I read this passage that says, there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. Incorruptible, pervert the gospel. How do you harmonize that? Well, harmonize it with the word would. They would pervert the gospel of Christ. They'd like to pervert the gospel of Christ, but they can't do it. And Paul went ahead and said in that passage, it's not the gospel. It's another, it's another gospel, but it's not the gospel. Once you've perverted it, it's not the good news. It's not the gospel anymore. And so the seed is implanted. We're baptized into Christ. We're raised to walk in newness of life. That's one of the great misunderstandings of John chapter 3. There are some questions that, to me, make no difference. But a lot of people spend a lot of time wondering about how was Nicodemus dressed? I already mentioned that a couple of minutes ago. Did he have all the paraphernalia and regalia and clothing that would identify himself as a Pharisee, as a member of the Sanhedrin, or did he go home and take all that stuff off and just kind of dress down and appear like a normal person? I don't know. I don't care. Why did he come to Jesus by night? Oh boy, you've read that before, haven't you? All kinds of reasons and speculations. Why he came to Jesus by night. He, he was busy during the day. He knew Jesus was busy during the day. And so night might be the only time to catch somebody like Jesus. And for him to have the time to have this private conversation with Jesus. That's one idea. John doesn't say that. The Holy Spirit doesn't say it through John, but people thought maybe that's why. Or maybe he didn't want his fellow members of the Sanhedrin to catch him talking to this pretender 
This one who claimed to be something they weren't buying at all. Or maybe he was worried about Jesus' safety. Or maybe, or maybe, or maybe, or maybe. All I know is that Nicodemus came to Jesus by night for whatever reason. And then there's one that you may not have noticed. There's some question about exactly who said what in John chapter 3. Do you have your Bible open to John chapter 3? I don't have a red letter Bible. I didn't realize that when I bought this thing, but I took it. I just took an old-fashioned red pencil. When Don and I first got married, we went back to our hometown of Metropolis, and we both taught school, and we knew about red pencils. And boy, we like to use those red pencils when when people messed up on a test or a quiz or something. So I got me a red pencil and kind of turned it sideways, and I shaded in what other Bibles have as the red letter portion of of the Bible. You realize how how new the idea of a red-letter Bible is. You know, when Matthew wrote Matthew, or John wrote John, or Luke wrote Luke, or whatever, they didn't write red letters and black letters. They just wrote. And I found out it wasn't until 1899, 1899, that somebody came up with the idea, let's have a red-letter edition of the New Testament. And then in 1901... There was the red letter Bible, and they got the idea. This is, I think this is kind of intriguing. They got the idea for red, where Jesus said, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. So since Jesus said his, the New Testament, it's written in his blood, sort of, we're going to make the letters of Jesus, the words of Jesus, red. So if you've got a red letter Bible, you supposedly have what Jesus said, in red letters. There's some, there's some discrepancy. There's some debate about how much of John chapter 3 ought to be read. Now, when I shaded mine in red, I went all the way down to verse 21. Most red letter Bibles have John 3, starting with verse, not verse 1, because verse 1 doesn't talk about what Jesus is saying, but starting with verse 3, about the middle of it, and then off and on down to verse 21 is red. There's a school of thought that says the red letter ought to stop right before verse 16. That uh, golden text of the Bible, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, you know that verse. That and all the verses after verse 16, some scholars, some thinkers think, well, John wrote that, but Jesus didn't say that. And there is a school of thought that cuts the red letter portion all the way back to the end of verse 12. That Jesus stopped talking at the end of verse 12. And the reasoning is, the pronouns change. In verse 13, whoever's writing talks about Jesus in the third person. He doesn't say I and me and all that sort of stuff anymore. It's talking about Jesus In the third person, no one has ascended into heaven except he, not me, not I, except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And now, if we have time, we're going to talk about a verse this morning where Jesus talks about himself in the third person. He talks about himself a lot in the third person. Now, you know, that doesn't, why does it not matter to me? Why do people spend so much ink, time, Writing about that, I don't know, but here's what I do know. All Scripture is given by the inspiration of God. 
is profitable for doctrine and reproof, for correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man may be perfect, thoroughly furnished, unto all good work. It doesn't matter if it came from the lips of Jesus or from the pen of John. It's true. What those men wrote, everything they wrote, is truth. They would even quote somebody saying something wrong, but it's an accurate quote of what they said wrong. They're not quoting somebody saying something wrong here. Even if it is just John writing, what he's writing is truth. And in this discussion, in this discussion between Jesus and Nicodemus, there are some points I want us to spend some time on this morning about he who descended, he who came down from heaven. First of all, there's some clues in here about his, and I've got it in quotation marks, his origin. And the reason it's in quotation marks will be clear in just a minute or two. When Nicodemus begins to talk to Jesus, we know that you're a teacher come from God. I guess the same thing could have been said about Jonah in the Old Testament or John the Baptist in the New Testament or some other spokesman from God that it doesn't necessarily say he came from heaven, but he came representing God. Jonah goes to Nineveh, sent from God, sent by God, maybe may the better preposition. And as he begins to talk, he says, we know that you can't do what you're doing unless God is with you. Now, Nicodemus has some insight, and that's another one of those debates. How much insight did Nicodemus have? Was he a full-fledged believer, and is that why he came to Jesus by night? Because he didn't want the Sanhedrin to, to figure out how devoted he was to the Lord? I'm not getting into that. I do know what he said. We know that you're from God. We know you can't do what you're doing unless God is with you. But what we need to see, not just from this text, but maybe from other places, the man with whom he's having a conversation was not just from God. It wasn't just that God was with him. He's talking to God. He's talking to God in the flesh. Let me ask you something. And I guess this is a Bible class, so if you want to answer audibly, I I suppose it would be okay. How does the concept of eternity strike you? Are you comfortable with that? I'll be honest with you. Sometimes I struggle with that. I really do. I'm used to things having a beginning. If it's a book, Adam gave me a couple of books this morning for Father's Day, and I'm excited about looking into those things and reading those things. I'm, I know how books work. You start here and you work your way through, and finally, it may not say the end, but you reach the end. I'm used to things having a beginning and a middle and an end, or a movie, or a TV show, or you're hoping maybe a Bible class, a beginning and a middle and an end, and the end comes very quickly, we hope. I really appreciate whoever had the foresight to not put a clock in the back of this auditorium. I've been joking with the folks back home. We've got one back there. 
And I think, yeah, I'm always good with passages of Scripture being seen and posted and various things. I think it'd be nice to, right below that clock, or right above that clock back there, put Luke 17.32. You know what that says? Remember Lot's wife. Think about that. Think about what happened to her when she turned around and looked back. That's kind of what I want people to think about when they turn around and, and uh, look at that clock. But we sometimes get the idea that that's the way it is. We, we have a thing, Donna started this, I think this is our fifth one this year, called Cousins Camp. And some of you who are on Facebook saw some pictures from Cousins Camp. Mary Carol and Turner and their three cousins on our side of the family came to our house and we had three or four days of, I think it was fun, wasn't it? Yeah, it was fun, yeah. It was, it was <laughs> we got tired so we must have had fun. And one of the things we did was kind of like what your slogan is for the year, I guess, examining our roots or exploring our roots. We went back and Don and I are both from Metropolis, right across the river from Paducah, and, and all four of our grandparents, all four of our parents are buried there, and Donna's paternal grandparents are buried there. And one of the things we did was take the grandkids and just show them the grave, fix up the tombstone, put some flowers there, Memorial Day weekend, and then kind of tell them the story. Tell them the story of, here's your grandma and grandpa Fawn, here's your grandma and grandpa Turner, and here's their body, here's where they're buried, and here's a little bit about their life. And as I thought about that, as I thought about this lesson, I thought one of these days it's going to be my grave that somebody's going to be visiting. We're not crazy about our life coming to an end, but we're kind of used to the fact that our life comes to an end. But about the time I get my brain halfway wrapped around the idea that once I was conceived in my mother's womb, I'll never cease to exist somewhere, I thought, well, maybe I need to read the Bible and get my mind off of that. And I read Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, in the beginning, God. Or, I'll turn to the book of Psalms. Maybe I'll find something to read about in Psalms that won't remind me about eternity. And I'll read the phrase that we prayed a while ago, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God, or thou art God, depending on your translation. If you can explain to me a being that has no beginning and has no ending, you can have this gospel meeting the rest of the week. I don't understand that. I cannot understand how something can have no beginning and no ending. But that's what the Bible says about God. And that's what the Bible says about the one to whom Nicodemus was talking in John chapter 3. Go back to chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. Drop down to verse 14. The word, whatever the Word is, was in the beginning with God, was God. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among men. Who's that? That's Jesus. Before the beginning, 
there was Jesus. He has no origin. That's why I put the word origin in quotation marks. In fact, there are some things you may be interested in that are at least in the mind of God from the, from the very beginning or before the beginning. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 talks about the fact that all spiritual blessings are in Christ, verse 3. And then in verse 4 says, He's foreordained before the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the world, that we should be in Him. Not individually, you know, the predestination kind of idea, but saved people are in Christ. That was in God's plan before the world ever began. The same book, chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, says that the Lord's church was part of God's plan before the beginning. The church, the manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose, which He purposed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And John says, before the beginning... There was Jesus. In Revelation chapter 13, I think it is, in verse 8, Jesus is identified as the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Oh, okay. Okay, maybe he's, maybe when the world began, that's when the plan began. But 1 Peter 1, 19 and 20 says that he was before the foundation of the world. And so when Thomas said... My Lord and my God. He was right. He was right. That's who Nicodemus was talking to. His nature is hinted at and mentioned in John chapter 3. The one who descended from heaven says something about his nature. There are two phrases, Son of Man and Son of God, you find over and over again in the New Testament. You find Son of God, Jesus saying something about the Son of God, about Himself being the Son of God, something like five times in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You find Jesus saying something about Himself being the Son of Man, something like 80 times in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The Son of God, the Son of Man. What's the significance of that? The significance is that he is, as some preachers have said, as I'm sure Adam has said and others have said, that he is fully God and he's fully man. The significance is that he fulfilled prophecy. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, the seed of woman would bruise the head of the serpent. Well, we understand... Carry that on down, and he's talking about the virgin birth of Jesus. Or Adam's, Abraham's prophecy, God to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 22, In your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. You turn over to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16, and Paul makes the argument that Donna would love, because she used to be an English teacher, and she loves to talk about English you know, type stuff. Grammar and, you know, with all the other pressures the gospel preacher has, I'm standing up in front of a woman who's a speech teacher and an English teacher. Every time I get up here, I'm thinking, oh, man, what did I do wrong this time? You know, what, what wrong pronoun did I use or what wrong technique did I use speaking or whatever? 
He says to seed, to Abraham and his promises made, to his seed where the promise is made. And then Paul said, he didn't say seeds, plural. He said seed, one, which is Christ. Fulfillment of prophecy. All the debate about Isaiah 7.14. A virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son. You'll call his name Emmanuel. Was Isaiah talking about something that was going to happen during his time or something that was going to happen later? Or was it a dual fulfillment prophecy? What was Isaiah talking about? Well, again, I'm kind of simple-minded. All I know is what I read in Matthew 1.23 that Joseph was told by the angel, this is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah. And you'll call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. The fact that he's the son of man helps him to identify with us. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 says, we don't have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. I knew a lady one time years ago who didn't believe that verse. She said, I don't believe Jesus was tempted in every way that we were tempted. Jesus never was married. That told me something about her marriage, I guess, but that's, that was her thinking. Jesus never was married, and so he didn't understand all the temptations and all the struggles and all the pressures of being married. I'll stick with the Bible. He was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. The lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, pride of life, all three of those were covered during the life of Christ specifically during his temptation, but at other times as well. He's the example of humility and service. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. If we have time, we're going to get back to to this in in a few minutes. In Philippians chapter 2, fairly familiar passage. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Have this mind among yourselves, starting with verse 5, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in fashion, or being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. There's the point. He became human to give us an example of humility. How much time have I got at him? Ten minutes? Okay. Okay, let me, let me deal, since I've got a little bit of time, let me deal with some, some uh, extremes on this point that are floating out there in the religious world that you and I may need to be aware of and may, know how to, may need to know how to uh, deal with. Son of man, son of God. There are those who teach that he really wasn't and isn't deity. you realize that? They may come knocking on your door and trying to give you some material from the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, the Jehovah Witness, and they come to your door and say, we got something we want, for you to, want you to read. Have you ever read their Bible? Have you ever read John 1? In their Bible, the New World Translation of the Holy Scriptures. 
In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was a small g God. Not God. Oh, he was a he was a, a God, sorta of, kinda. But he wasn't God. Colossians 1.18. He's the head of all things, all other things, they put in brackets. And all other things were created by him. I've got a good friend that preaches in Marshalltown, Iowa. We help support his work up there. And he blew my mind one day, and it blew his mind when he bought this Bible. He uses the, the American Standard Version of 1901. That's what he uses to preach from, to study from, and, and all that sort of thing. He opened that Bible up, and he said, look at this. And it was like the title page, or whatever you call those things. Published by the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. That's the Bible they used before they came up with their own mistranslation. They had to come up with their own to fit their doctrine. The ASV didn't fit it. The King James didn't fit it. No other translation fits it. So they came up with their own to fit their doctrine. Jesus never became, it never was really deity. John 1, 1 again. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 8. That's an intriguing verse to me. Where the Father calls the Son God. Thy throne, the Father says to the Son, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of thy kingdom. Father calls the Son God. And then there are those who think that, well, maybe he never was really man. I mean, he could walk through doors and walk on water and do all kind of strange things. So maybe he never was really man. Philippians 2, we talked about that passage. talks about the fact that he was in the likeness of men and he appeared as a man. Hebrews 2.14 says he took part in flesh and blood. But it also says we take part in flesh and blood or we share in flesh and blood. Jesus, you read the Gospels, got tired. He would show his frustration. We might say he even got angry on one occasion. He was hungry. He was a man. Matthew chapter 26. He's standing before the Sanhedrin, before Caiaphas. And Caiaphas says, are you the son of God? He said, you say so. And hereafter, you'll see the Son of Man doing certain things. He accepted the Son of God as part of his identity, and he called himself, and there's no question about whether or not that's red letter or not, the Son of Man. He is both. And then finally, in what time we have left, his mission. He fulfilled the Old Testament. We're going to talk about that more in the next hour. Luke 24, 44 all things written in the prophets, Moses, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms concerning me were fulfilled. He fulfilled Old Testament scripture. He was here to reveal truth, reveal heavenly truth. I just jotted down some things. And we're not talking about the organization of the church and the plan of salvation and so on and so forth. But let me just suggest some things that are heavenly truths that Jesus revealed during his time here. 
this is my way of expressing some of those. Material and temporal matters should not be as of a great concern to us as spiritual matters. Like he taught that. One soul is worth more than the entire world. That's not the way the world sees things, but that's the way heaven sees things. You have trouble with this next one? I do sometimes. Forgiving each other is not an option. It's an absolute necessity. Didn't he say if you don't forgive, you don't get forgiveness? What the world sees as important is actually of very little importance. You tell me who the last ten World Series winners were. Or Super Bowl winners were. Or the last ten presidents. Not that important. Seemingly small acts like a cup of cold water. Don't go unnoticed. The way up is down. We'll talk about that in a later lesson. Service is more important than position. And time needs to be spent with people that we may think are undesirable. Those are some of the things that Jesus talked about that maybe I need to listen to more than some of the things I spend a lot of time with. In John chapter 3, it's at least hinted at very strongly. As Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And we understand that he's talking about his crucifixion. He came here to be a sacrifice. I meant to mention something about Hebrews chapter 10 a while ago, but I'll mention it now because it fits into this context as well. It talks about his deity, his pre-existence. In Hebrews chapter 10, you're going to find a conversation that I love to look at and I love to think about because it's almost like we're eavesdropping on a conversation that took place in heaven before Jesus ever came here where he's talking to his father. And the song says they searched through heaven to find a Savior, not from Hebrews chapter 10. He volunteered for the job. He volunteered to come here and he says, you have prepared a body for me. And in the context, he's talking about sacrifice. One sacrifice by that one person for all sin forever. Matthew 20 and verse 28 again. This is my blood of the New Testament is shed for many for the remission of sins. His mission involved life. We'll talk about that this week, the Lord willing. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. What is the abundant life? We're going to be dealing with that, I think, Thursday night. What is the abundant life? I've got a brand new car and a brand new house and a trophy bride and I've got all these things. I'm having the abundant life. I wonder if that's what the abundant life really is. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 8 and says that godliness is profitable in all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. That's the godly life. And then the last thing I want to suggest is his message has to do, his mission has to do with light. That's down in verses 19, 20, and 21 of John chapter 3. But it's also way back in John chapter 1, verse 4. In him, Christ, was life. And the life was the light of men. 
And he starts talking about light again. And then in John chapter 3, the idea of Jesus being light and something that makes a lot of sense to most of us, even if it wasn't in the Bible, those who don't love Jesus, who don't love the truth, who don't love righteousness, we try to do what we do in the darkness, don't we? We don't want anybody to see us. But those who want to do the right thing are the ones who come to the light. They come to Jesus. Jesus left heaven, came here, because, as we said earlier, he loves me so. We'll explore some of the specific things he said starting in a few minutes.